Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Exeter. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are indeed discussing one of his newest books, A Brief History of History, published by Indiana University Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I'm disappointed with the usual way in which historians look at their subject, at historiography, at historical method, and I wanted to offer a different approach. Would it be true to say that for for you, many uh, accounts of history and historiography tend to be, uh, how should I put it, Western-centered? They're Western-centered. Yes, I think you're absolutely right on that. But also, I think within the West, and indeed within the non-West, there is a problem that historians tend to be in love with the mirror, tend to be fascinated with their own role in presenting the past, and underplay, as I tried to show in my book, the many other um, entities, milieus, formats that I would suggest are much more important from uh, family to state, uh, from film to computer. So for you, there's really no point to examining historiography and history from the vantage point of what you characterize in the book as, quote, crucial historical thinkers, unquote. Well, yes. I mean, I think the problem is that um, you can end up with thinking that the branch of intellectual thought, which is historiography, actually explains how we view the past. And I think that's completely misleading. It might explain how a tranche of academic historians view the past. But in brackets, I would say it doesn't tell you very much about actually many societies and states, close brackets. But what I would argue is that this branch of intellectual thought is virtually meaningless when you're looking at, for example, how um, families discuss what their ancestors did or ethnicities or religions talk about their identity, or states discuss what their governments propose as their historical mission. So I don't imagine, for example, that Vladimir Putin, in discussing or proposing, um, and we know he's written about the subject, uh, his views on Ukraine, was sitting there reading um, you know, the, the um, English Historical Review or, or American Historical Review to see what was the uh, approved form of methodology. I mean, I'm totally against Putin, but I think it's laughable to see the way in which academics comport themselves. And what do you mean, or is that actually why do you, why do you say um, that, quote, for most groups, history is a search for meaning and identity, unquote? Well, I think that uh, most um, ethnic, national, uh, religious groups, and indeed subsets and other groups, see themselves as acting and existing in time. And therefore, in order to understand their and to present themselves at the, at the contemporary world and indeed in the future, I think it's necessary 
for them to envisage and offer a account of the past. Now, that can be a mythic account of the past. It's always a heroic account of the past. But again, mythic accounts of the past are scarcely absent from uh, other milieus, including um, those that we might valorize. So in other words, the tendency is always to say uh, we have a mature and informed sense of our historical identity, whereas they are, you know, foolish and uh, liars. That doesn't mean that all accounts are of equal value. Relativism should only go so far. But it does mean that one that one needs to understand the background from which people are coming when they present an, an account of themselves. So as you know, you and I, Charles, have discussed World War II. And as you will know, there are different historical accounts offered of, from, of World War II, many of them varying with the perspective adopted. Yes, and actually I suppose that leads to the question, how much agency does one um, uh, give to popular ideas of history as opposed to the extent that there is a state emphasis on a particular aspect of uh, history? I'm thinking in particular, since you brought up uh, Putin, uh, the Russian popular as well as state understanding of the Second World War. And while it's, tr I mean, from my perspective, while it's true that there was a pre, there was a great emphasis by the state apparatus under Putin, and even before Putin, even during the Khrushchev-Brezhnev years, on the heroic Russian, heroic Russian um, history of the Second World War, they also, to a great extent, there was some agency by the, by. Um, people at large in the Soviet Union, whether in uh, what is today the Russian Federation or Ukraine or Belarus or places further east, which, get, which in terms of uh, how popular opinion view the Second World War was not that dissimilar to the way the state apparatus fostered that belief. Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, clearly, it's easiest to, for us to probe that when there is a discontinuity. So, for example, the fall of the Iron, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe uh, led to, in places like Poland, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, the revelation that the indoctrination by communism had been, in many respects, a failure and that there was a strong sense of national identity uh, and indeed religious devotion and religious activity uh, that was very separate to that of communist norms and indeed for those parts that have been under the Soviet Union of Soviet control. So that contrast we could see very clearly. We can debate um, its extent. It's e we can debate um, people might like or dislike what happened, but I don't think there's any doubt that the vitality of Polish nationalism at a time of communist oppression is very clear. Where this is much less clear is when you might have a congruence. Now, the congruence does not necessarily have to be a complete one. So you and I have discussed, and I hope listeners to the New Book Network will go back to Charles and my previous podcast, because we've discussed an enormous range of history. You and I have discussed popular support for the Nazis, the Third Reich, which it's quite clear that their view of history, both in the short term, uh, acute revisionism against the Treaty of Versailles, and in the longer term, 
uh, a view of German power, a view of uh, hostility, due hatred, a hatred of and dislike of Slavs, etc., 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 that there was a considerable degree of congruence between popular attitudes and the government of the Third Reich, but also that, you know, many Germans had not voted for the Nazis when they were given the choice to vote. That doesn't mean that those who necessarily voted against them necessarily dissented from German expansionism, but it just meant, means that they didn't necessarily accept the Nazi proposals. So we have that problem to deal with. I think you're absolutely right. There is popular agency. You can clearly see that most obviously in democratic societies. And one of the points about democratic societies is they subvert the uh, very pernicious um, intellectual habit, particularly seen on the left, but also seen on the non-left, of referring to a zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, as if everybody in a given format, a given context, a given country was thinking in a certain way, or at least that there was a clearly dominant point of view. Any good historian knows that that is intensely problematic as a viewpoint, but obviously the capacity to express differing views to those of authoritarian norms is much less in dictatorial societies. Why do you refer to the Dark Ages in your accounting of that period of time in the book as opposed to the more recent uh, late antiquity? Do you per se disagree with the thesis behind this late antiquity as such? No, 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 Charles, you and I are being intellectuals and academics when we're talking about that. But if you want to go down the street, you will find that most people here have no idea what you mean about late antiquity, whereas they do have an idea what you mean about the Dark Ages. And I always am trying to write my books and give my talks from the perspective that I want people to understand them. I cannot stand academics who exist in a little world, a little bubble, of, let's say, phrases like intertextuality or white privilege or whatever they want to talk about, um, in which they have these ideas and concepts that are, exclude the vast bulk of the population. Hilariously, of course, many of these people claim to represent the people, but what they represent, in fact, is their own vanity. Why do you find that uh, modernization theory, as used in history, history and historiography, is problematic? Well, modernization uh, history, and of course I originally came to work, work on this in the late 80s when I was uh, challenging the notion of the military revolution, which again we've talked about. Modernization history tends to be unidirectional history. It tends to be that you assume that something is, equates with mod modernity, the modernity you want, and therefore that history leads towards that. And if you don't think it's leading in that direction, then, of course, you leave it out. So you can see that in, for example, the volumes of the Penguin History of Europe. Distinguished authors, people like Tim Blanning for the 18th century or Richard Evans for the late 19th century, essentially wrote about a small subset of the continent of Europe, excluding large areas, the Balkans, for example, because they, they did not conform to the views that these historians had about the way in which Europe was developing. That may or may not suit one's personal 
view, you know, individuals writing, of course, have their values. Uh, you know, some of them are going to be religious, some not. Some of them are going to be conservative. The vast majority would be on the left, etc., etc., etc. But the point is that if you assume history is going in a certain direction, then you automatically are offering an analysis to go with the narrative that you have uh, off, uh, you've provided, and it's in a sense a closed set. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. You might as well give somebody a text to worship, as opposed to suggesting that the past has complexity and people in it have agency. What was the relationship between 19th century nationalism and history? Well, a close one. I mean, um, na new nations, would-be nations, existing nations. Uh, tended to see themselves in a historical continuity, and they looked to validate their existing interests, identity, constitution, uh, and their proposed changes, though those would vary by political grouping, um, in terms of an account of the past. Um, also, of course, in the 19th century, you get, it varies depending upon which part of the world you're talking about, you get higher literacy, you've got much uh, cheaper um, printing, much uh, greater scale printing. So you've got a wider, um, a wider opportunity to express in particular forms um, a, um, a sense of a historical identity. And bluntly, for example, if you're going to set up state schools, you've got to have something to teach in them. Uh, you've got to have something that makes a logic that this is this, the schools of France or the schools of Sweden and so on and so forth. Now, clearly, um, on the global scale, at the same time, uh, you have got the extension of imperial systems um, and not just Western ones. I mean, it's it's one of the fallacies of a lot of current uh, decolonization theorists is that empire was just a Western project. Late 19th century imperialism includes, for example, Menelik II in Abyssinia, Ethiopia, or the Chinese on their, in their northwest frontier area in Sinkien. Um, but the point is, in each of these cases, you have got um, a um, a, a relationship between nationalism and history that is more complex than that if you were just looking at those in terms of European would-be nation-states like the development of, I don't know, Finnish identity within the Russian Empire. What is meant by the expression decolonizing the curriculum as it applies to history? Well, I have to tell you, again, we've discussed this, I've written about it, decolonization is a fantasy as a project for understanding the past in any empirical, uh, rational or conceptually uh, accurate form. Uh, it is a rhetoric of analysis. I mean, we've just seen that, for example, with a piece in one of British Britain's leading newspapers by one of your historians, or somebody called Caroline Elkins at Harvard, um, which is just a diatribe about the British Empire masquerading as history. Now, um, so what I would say about decolonization is a process, historical process existed of decolonization, the end of imperial rule. Uh, but what it's been turned into is an attempt at anti-white racism. It's been turned into, uh, by anti-white racism, I mean racism directed against whites. Okay, 
um, um, which masquerades as opposition to white racism. Um, uh, it's been turned into a diatribe against capitalism. It's been turned into a diatribe against the West. At the present moment, you can see it also being employed against, um, for example, Israel. Doubtless, it will be employed against South um, against Taiwan soon. So what you've actually got is a heavy, heavily politicized use of the past, which in indeed accords with my view of how history actually operates. In other words, I would say that these academics producing a deeply flawed account of reality are actually corresponding with much of the um, general usage of history by um, states and societies. The irony is that they see themselves as in some way better. So in many senses, you know, somebody like Caroline Elkins is similar, in, uh, though she wouldn't like to see herself in that light, no doubt, similar to, let us say, some, some supporter of um, Donald Trump um, in the sense that they would have an ideology uh, which operates in past, present and future and in which anybody asking inconvenient questions is trodden on or accused of whatever they want to accuse them of. Um, the reality is that if you're looking at the past, the first way to start off with, uh, with uh, approaching it, if you want to get it accurate, now most people don't want to get it accurate. Most people want to provide an immediate, glib and all-incorporating all account. But if you want to get it accurate, start off by saying it is very difficult to do it. Number two, let's talk a little bit about sources. For most of history, we don't have sources for what most people thought. For most of history, even if we're looking at those who are literate and even if we're looking at those who are in government, it is often the case that the sources are bitty, incomplete and open to different interpretations. Now, this would have been understood by a 19th centuryist trained by in the traditions of, let us say, Ranker, the great uh, Prussian um, historian. But of course, most of the modern academic, academe, you can see it a lot, I'm afraid, in your country. There are very many good historians in your country, but there are also many in the academic profession who are shoddy, who got into it by making the right sounds and the right symbols and belonging to groups that people wish to advance. And they then find it easier to produce a very glib account rather than actually saying, well, we don't really know, or talking about inconvenient things, like if you want to attack the slave trade, and I've written three books on, the, on slavery and the slave trade, three histories, you know, I'm, I'm in no doubt that it was a horrific and terrifying and terrible situation. But it doesn't help to say that the, trade, the slave trade is simply a matter of white privilege, white imperialism, whatever you want to call it. A, that takes away the agency from the Africans who enslaved other Africans and sold them, and B, it ignores um, the uh, existence of slavery in other societies across time and across space, including uh, for the period of the classical Atlantic slave trade, um, you know, slave movements uh, from the from Africa into the Islamic world as well as, of course, ignoring the extent to which there was state slavery and indeed is state slavery at the present moment. You know, if you're looking at possibly the greatest slave society of the present day, it's North Korea. But you don't see many people marching, um, you know, for in, in the United States in Korean Lives Matter marches. 
Would it be true to say that you believe that nationalism existed in the pre-modern period? Yes. And, you know, again, I've written extensively on that. Um, I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the classic literature on nationalism arguing that it's essentially uh, a, a late-onset phenomenon of what is called modernity reflects the relatively limited knowledge by many of the people writing about the 19th and 20th century on the situations earlier and also the extent to which they have, as it were, been appointed and promoted within established uh, hierarchies. It's very difficult, let me tell you, as an academic. Um, you know, academics claim to believe in intellectual freedom, but the fact is that you uh, tend to be appointed, uh, funded and promoted as a result of endorsing um, accepted views. And those accepted views tend to be only acceptable within quite narrow paradigms generally defined by those who have power within the profession or occupation. So this is not a matter of encouraging people to have free thought. How has the People's Republic of China's official nationalism influenced how Manchu rule is viewed in present-day China by Chinese scholars? Well, I've discussed in my book, um, and it's kind of you to refer to it, um, the Chinese accounts, and indeed those of authoritarian societies as a whole, because I'm trying to displace the idea that history is something defined by people in a small number of Western intellectual communities. In the case of China, there is a long-standing tendency by Chinese um, scholars and political circles in the post-imperial period, in other words, since 1911-1912, to argue that there was a fundamental Chinese identity and that this was then challenged by um, uh, invaders from, uh, from the steppes, of which the last in the sequence were the Manchu, um, who um, took power after the suicide of the last Ming emperor in 1644 and who'd finished their conquest of China uh, apart from Taiwan um, by the end of the 1650s. Now, what that leads to is a account of the Chinese past in which some periods are regarded as acceptable and other periods are regarded as unacceptable. And the Manchu period was regarded as secondarily unacceptable, not just because it was allegedly foreign, but secondarily unacceptable because in the 19th century from the First Opium War in the late 80, sorry, 1830s onwards, uh, China was seen to have been under a kind of foreign pressure, uh, increased par uh, role of, of foreign uh, political, military and economic interests, and therefore that this was a disreputable period that had to be torn off the Chinese past. That's a way of looking at um, Chinese history. I have to say um, it is a way that is very self-validating, of course, for the Chinese communists, just as it was for the Kuomintang, incidentally, in the 1920s and 1930s. But it's very self-validating. But it can, re re it can uh, rest on a, um, a simplification, to put it mildly, of the Manchu period. How do you see the future of history as a discipline? Uh, with great pessimism. I mean, I think that uh, history as a as a field in which human beings identify themselves 
separately find interest, whether it's um, personal, family, communal, whether it's, um, as it were, with the objet of the past or other other aspects of it, that's going to go on and on and on. And the biggest form of history at the present moment, of course, is family reconstruction studies, genealogical research, television programs which tell people or other about what other people's grandparents did and they suggest that one's own grandparents may have done something similar. Those are going to have enormous you know, sway. As far as um, uh, history as an intellectual project within the universities, well, in much of the world, it's, uh, as it were, at the control of authoritarian societies. And you you can see this very clearly in, say, Iran or China. In parts of the world, it's very much under the suasion of assertive um, political movements, shall we say, the BJP government of of, uh, Modi, in India, and in parts of the world, it's very much affected by the kind of modish and often fatuous uh, faddishness, as we would see in a lot of the Anglosphere, which has got very little to do with explaining the past and a lot to do with, um, as it were, valorizing it behind a program of political rhetoric. And, you know, I mean, after all, this will give individuals money and influence when the left is in power, but I don't think it's necessarily of any particular intellectual value, and um, nor does it necessarily have any particular political account in that I'm not not convinced that governments, uh, even of that political persuasion, take much interest in what the intellectuals, so self-styled intellectuals, say to them. On that observation, which I would like to thank, which I like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel, New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much. Thank you, and I, I don't imagine that all listeners will agree with me, but I'd like them at least to think about what I've said and to read the book because I think I'm correct in saying that the book is the first real attempt to take history and not simply, uh, and the past of history, and not simply study it from the perspective of a predetermined, predefined preference for what intellectuals do in universities. Point well taken. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you.